Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Dr. Phil. I need you to subscribe to the Humanity Matters podcast. Subscribe today. Send me an email, humanitymatterspodcast at gmail.com. And let's remember to share love, be kind, be generous. Another session of Ask Dr. Phil. Anything? Well, almost anything. Uh, Hope everybody is having a great Friday and everything. So I got uh, received a lot of good questions. And so I want to uh, be able to tackle those real quickly and just have a good time. So if you have a question, uh, go ahead and chime it in. You can put it in the message section and I would love to get with you. Hello, Don. Uh, Glad to uh, meet you. So first question I received was this, and it's regarding the Constitution. So and the question is this, according to the spirit and principles of the U.S. Constitution and also to the changes and amendments that have been made since, what is a modern day practical description of religious entitlements for Christians? For example, is it reasonable and constitutional for Christians to have an expectation of certain religious freedoms if they do not expect other religions to be given the same freedoms? Alrighty, so uh, according to uh, the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights, uh, there is no Uh, state-sponsored religion, excuse me, federal sponsorship of a religion. And so uh, in the context when the founding fathers were coming from Britain to America, uh, Anglicanism was the state religion for uh, the empire. And that created some difficulties, you know, religious persecution, so on and so forth. Uh, And so as Uh, The colonists were coming here and setting up shop here in America. Uh, One of the things they saw was um, that the federal government would not impose upon the citizenry a um, that they had to worship a certain way, worship a certain God, worship in a certain manner. Now, you could find early on in some of the different colonies, uh, there was this religious test to run for office. Um, there was the, you know, some states were like, this is going to be the denomination for our state. But uh, as time progressed, uh, what we see is this, is that uh, the federal government and state governments, and I would even add city governments, county governments, uh, show no uh, preference to a particular religion. Now, We have to take into context, looking at the Declaration of Independence, looking at the Constitution, uh, that there is a uh, Christian flavor to the Constitution and the founding documents. And that's to be expected if you take into consideration the culture, the people that wrote the documents, uh, so on and so forth, then there's a reasonable expectation that Uh, The Constitution has a Judeo-Christian flavor to that. Now, with that being said, do I think it's reasonable and constitutional for Christians to have an expectation of certain religious freedoms? 
I don't want the Constitution to favor any religion at all. I don't want uh, the Constitution of the United States to favor Christianity uh, because then you got to get into the question of, well, what flavor of Christianity? Are we talking about uh, Protestantism? Are we talking about Catholicism? Are we talking about uh, Protestantism reformed? Are we talking about Protestantism Baptist? Are we talking about Pentecostals? You know, when you get um, into the high church, are we talking Anglican, Episcopal, Presbyterian, uh, the various types of reformed, you know, you've got the other major religions, Jews and Islam, so on and so forth. And then all the other host of religions uh, that are being created on a daily basis uh, by people. Uh, and the beauty of being in, in America is the fact that people can worship however they want, whomever they want as long as it does not harm anybody else or, or creates any type of detriment to society. Um, we have the freedom to worship or not to worship. And so uh, I get very nervous uh, if a religious group is seeking to be favored in a particular law, whether it's at the city, county, state, or federal uh, level, I want to be able to, as a as a Christian, uh, to be able to practice freely and not have uh, the federal government or the state government or county or city government come and tell me I have to worship this God, worship on this day, worship this way. Um, that is a freedom that I have, and it is a freedom to uh, be celebrated. And so I would hope. Uh, for Christians that when they are saying they want to stand for religious freedom, they would actually mean religious freedom and religious freedom is for everybody, regardless of whether they worship one God or multiple gods, whether they worship a rock or they are agnostic or are atheists. And so I would encourage, uh, especially uh, my Christian brothers and sisters who are very fervently evangelical, uh, that if you're pressing for religious freedom, press for religious freedom for everybody in the sense of the government is not going to impose on you a way to worship, who to worship, and that that same government is not favoring a religion. I actually don't even get bothered. Uh, you see, you know, in the news sometimes, um, different face opening up city councils or Senate or the House. Hey, we are a pluralistic society. Relig um, tax dollars made by Christians built these public institutions. Tax dollars made and contributed by persons who are Islamic built these places. So, hey, if they want to uh, open up uh, a session, whether the city, county, state, or federal level, so what? You know, if a politician wants to uh, swear um, swear uh, on uh, his or her religious document, whatever it is, I would hope that would be consistent. You know, so I don't expect a Muslim to put his or her hand on the Bible and and swear. 
honestly, I would rather them put their hands on the Constitution and swear, but that's a whole different discussion. So that's my answer to that question. Uh, so we're just doing Ask Dr. Phil Anything. Well, almost anything. And I've got a series of questions that I am uh, running through. Hold on one second. Sorry. And uh, I'm just taking you guys' questions. Uh, and hopefully these are helpful and gives you a little insight into uh, myself. So uh, next question. What do I do on my day off? Well, Fridays is typically my day off and I like to work out and then I take time to uh, read and write. I love to read and write. Uh, right now I am working on a project uh, that I hope to release in 2020, 2020 dealing with poverty and economics. Been reading a lot on that. And it's going to be coming out. So I spend my Fridays and my Sundays uh, primarily working on that. And then if there's a good movie that's out, uh, I like to catch that. So hopefully I'm going to catch Midway uh, today in celebration of Veterans Day that's coming up on Monday. So that's what I like to do on my work uh, day off and catch a little TV, catch up on little sports and things like that. All right. Next question. Uh, what are your thoughts about oh okay uh, what are my thoughts about a, a rapper um, and his faith and his use of language so I listened to the song um, and this young man he was being honest he was being real uh, he was uh, doing what David has done uh, he is doing what many of the prophets have done uh, wrestling with their faith even the apostles wrestling with their faith um, I'm not one who's going to judge how he is uh, wrestling with his faith. I would say in the use of language and how language is perceived in our culture. Um, and, you know, he opened up with some F-bombs and used the B word and all that. That can be uh, distracting to people uh, because of how our culture understands language. And so uh, he's going to need to take that in consideration. But ultimately, uh we're asking questions about our faith every day and um, the way we ask them. Uh, I believe uh, God is is listening to those and he's welcoming that questioning. And I believe over time we should grow in our faith and how we use language uh, and being wise as to when it's appropriate to use different types of language. So that's my thoughts on him. Uh, pretty good song, though. I will say that. So. Next question. What is my opinion of the current welfare system? Ooh, welfare. Welfare. So, I'm a free market guy. Okay? Uh, before that, I also understand this, is that each and every one of us are uh, human beings that are created, who are created in freedom. And uh, I believe that every human being uh, has this bent to live their life uh, how they would like to live it without uh, intrusion, without someone telling them what to do. Um, I mean, you can see it from kids. Kids, like, they want to do their thing. 
Um, you know, over time, if you would pay attention, we all want to do our thing and not be told what to do, not be judged, so on and so forth. Um, in regards to welfare, I understand um, that in our societies, whether here in America or in Mexico or Canada or overseas, the host of different nations, you're going to have those who have a lot. You can have those that got some, you can have those who have little. And the question becomes as a society, how do we address these inequalities or inequities in terms of income and wealth and uh, so on and so forth? Um, and with, sorry, got distracted. Spiders, I don't like spiders. So in regards to uh, helping those who are in need, uh, we need to ask ourselves, um, what do we want the end goal to be as a organized group of men and women? We also want to ask ourselves, um, what are the trade-offs or the solutions? When you come up with a solution, there's trade-offs, all right? And in regards to uh, anything that is dealing with a lack of something, a lack of something that somebody has, um, there's going to be a trade-off. Now, um, as I said, I believe we're all created in freedom as human beings. Second is that I firmly hold to a free market approach and interaction. And so uh, when two people come together, when two people come together, um, they're both trying to meet some level of self-interest, okay? And so, for instance, I'm sitting at Starbucks right now down in Little Rock. And um, if I want some water, that's to meet my self-interest, okay? But in order for me to get that water, I go into Starbucks. I'm like, hey, can I get a water, Right? They give me the water that meets my need. That employee that's working, their need is met in terms of, or the self-interest is met in terms of uh, conducting work. Now, if I go in there and I want a white chocolate mocha, okay? Um, there's two ways I can get that white chocolate mocha. I can drop $5 and say, hey, I want a hot white chocolate mocha. I give them the $5. They make the white chocolate mocha. They give it back to me. Self-interest has been met on both ends. I get what my body is desiring, the white chocolate mocha, and Starbucks is getting $5. All right, so both interests have been met. We've gone our separate ways. So that's something I talk about called persuasion. But then there's another way. I could coerce Starbucks to give me a white chocolate mocha. Well, what do you mean? I can walk in there right now and say, hey, you're going to give me a white chocolate mocha or I'm going to bash you over the head. Now, the employee at the counter has the choice to make, right? They're weighing their options and they're going to look, is it in their self-interest to give me the white chocolate mocha or get bashed in the head? But either way, I'm seeking to coerce Starbucks into giving me a white chocolate mocha 
and my self-interest is met. And in some level, the employee's self-interest is met because they're not getting bashed over the head. Okay. So we're creating freedom. Two, I, I hold to a, a free market approach. And if you want to understand what that is, you can read Thomas Sowell. Uh, you can read Walter w Williams, Milton uh, Friedman. Uh, you can read some stuff on Adam Smith and Hayek. Uh, there's uh, the name skips me right now. There's a guy down in uh, Central America uh, as well who's been doing some work. Uh, but in doing that, what that does is uh, it begins to lift people up. Okay, it begins to lift people up because as I go in Starbucks, I could be like, hey, y'all know what? Y'all need to go to a Starbucks, get a white chocolate mocha, or go down to Round Mountain Coffee, get a white chocolate mocha. And uh, as people are coming in, Right. People's self-interest is being met. Their needs are being met. But also the coffee shop's need is being met and people are leaving happy life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Now, what does that mean about the welfare system? Um, I would like the current welfare system and the number of people that are in it to shrink. OK, so let's look at first. Everybody that's able-bodied, able-minded has some level of human capital that they can use to um, benefit not only their own self-interest, but the self-interest of, of the community, the city, this nation that we live in. Uh, the more people that you have freely interacting with one another to meet uh, self-interest, all right, and persuade one another to exchange something of value, right? One gets an object, one gets some monetary thing. People are benefited by that. When people are freely interacting to do that, that's a, a beautiful thing because what that does is it stimulates creativity, it stimulates hard work. And if you follow me for any type of time, hard work just affirms the dignity that is already residing in uh, human beings. And so uh, it would be a great thing to see more and more able-bodied, able-minded persons, right, be able to freely interact with other people in order to impact their economic situation. Now, welfare as it relates to, say, kids, okay, that's something we have to look at because Kids at a certain age, you know, they can't work. They can't provide for themselves. They are dependent on an adult for their uh, quality of life. And so it's important that we look at what are the best things that can be done to help kids in terms of food, in terms of, of health and things like that. Um, one of the things I have proposed is, you know, we need more and more. Um, health centers, if you will, opened up by people of goodwill uh, that would uh, provide, you know, health care type things for kids. Um, and in more and more of these things being done, actually, the cost gets lower. If more and more of those are open, if you have less of those open, right, if you look at supply and demand, if you have a little bit of things existing, the price of that thing is going to go up. But if you have 
more and more of those things, the price is going to go down and it'll benefit persons in poverty. It'll benefit middle class and it'll benefit uh, even those in the upper classes. But as well, if you have more and more of these like health centers open where you got doctors and nurses and CNAs and things like that, um, that's an opportunity to hire again more people to work in the healthcare field. Just something to think about. So in regards to the current welfare system, I would like to see it shrink. But as it's shrinking, create an environment in our city and state and country where there's less restrictions for people to freely interact with one another. Um, I think it's kind of crazy. You got to pay some dollars to get a business license. You got to pay some dollars to... Um, incorporate your name at the state, so on and so forth. Let me just open my business. Let me just open it and interact with people and affect my life and the life of my family and other people. So uh, those are my thoughts on the welfare system. Um, Do I think a welfare system should be like automatically done away with? No. I think that's, you're going to always have some persons who are going to be in uh, need, and I think that something can be done reasonably and gradually over time that helps people um, who are the most vulnerable in our society. And um, I'm talking about people who are physically unable to work or mentally unable to work. Um, that's where I think welfare should be focused on. Uh, then we can look at something for kids, but if you're able bodied and able minded, Um, I want you to be entrepreneurs. I want you to be able to just get up out of your house and just work um, a plan that you have and be creative and hustle and work and hustle and work. And, you know, there's going to be competition, but competition makes us better. You know, you know, when Jordan was playing, he had Barkley and Ewing uh, that made him better. When Kobe and Shaq were playing, they had competition that made them better. You know, LeBron. Uh, I know NBA is changing now, but competition makes you better. Uh, We see that in sports. I think we see that uh, in all types of environments. So those are my thoughts on the welfare system. So we're doing Ask Dr. Phil anything. Well, almost anything. And uh, I'm answering some questions that I received. If you got a question, just drop it in the comment section and I'll take it. Uh, Next. Okay, I love this question. So I recently heard a speech about how followers are just as valuable as leaders. My thought and question was, if you think you're a leader but don't have followers, are you really a leader? Can you find yourself in a leadership position but no one is with you? I don't mean for Dr. Phil Fletcher yourself because you have tons of helpers, followers, and fellow leaders alongside you. I mean just in general leadership. Can someone call themselves a leader if they aren't leading anything? So, great question. So my dissertation dealt with followers or what is called followership. Um, If you want to read a great book, read a book uh, by the author Ira Chalif. Uh, He's probably the leading writer on this, and it's called Courageous Followership. And he talks about uh, the value of followers and, and if you look at our world, 
there are more followers, if you will, than leaders. Okay? If you look at an organization um, headed by a CEO, everybody other than the CEO is a follower. But they're making everything happen on a daily basis. Yes, that CEO has the overall responsibility uh, and authority over that organization. And she has a responsibility uh, to the vision and mission of that organization. But she also has a responsibility uh, to those whom she is leading. The other thing is this about a follower is followership is contextual. So in one vantage point, you can be a leader in one context. You can move to a whole different context and be a follower. So, uh, for instance, when I was in the military and I was a platoon leader, uh, I was the leader. I was the officer in charge. Uh, in South Korea, along the DMZ, I had five tanks, um, 20 uh, soldiers I was leading. But when I went to the company level, I became a leader, but I was also a follower because I had a captain over me. But then when my captain and the, the five lieutenants went to the squadron meeting, um, I was in CAV units uh, the majority of the time that I was serving in the military. Um, we were s submitted to the lieutenant colonel. He was the squadron commander. And so in that essence, I became a follower. So followership can be contextual. In some vantage points, leaders are leaders. In a whole other context, a leader can become a follower. Now, if I'm all by myself, can I call myself a leader if I have no one walking alongside me? I'll never have, I'll never say somebody walking behind me. As much as I've studied about followership, followers are right there alongside the, the leader, if you will. Um, you're leading yourself because leadership essentially is about influence. Okay. And so, um, if you're all by yourself on a island, okay, um, and you have two books and you have some pen and paper, okay, you have the opportunity to influence yourself through discipline, um, through discipline of reading, discipline of writing, discipline of um, thinking deeply or shallow. I mean, what's, whatever your flavor is. But at that moment, you have the opportunity to lead yourself. And in leading yourself and learning to lead yourself, it can help you lead other people. And leadership is a lifelong experience. Followership is a lifelong experience. Uh, some of the things that Chayla points out about uh, the power, the influence of followers is that, you know, they have a moral responsibility. Uh, They're transformative in a uh, in a organization. Um, they have the role to participate and influence not only themselves, but also those around them. Um, and so as followers, if you're a follower, if you're not in some leadership position, right, you have a lot of influence, a lot of influence to speak life uh, in the organization, a lot of influence to uh, help other people uh, think strategically and operationally uh, regarding your organization. But then also, when you're all by yourself, lead yourself. 
take care of your body, take care of your mind, uh, read, write, do some type of exercise, and you're developing your leadership. So that was a great question. All righty. If you could be any animal, what would you be and why? Great question. So I have a lion tattooed on my arm. Um, I love lions because they don't have to say much. But you know when you see a lion walk in an area, you pretty much know... uh, You should think about what you're about to do. Um, And so, like, when I walk into places, I don't like to say much. I I think presence is pretty good. Um, I think presence can be a powerful thing. Uh, The other animal, I know it was asked if I could be any animal, but the second is an eagle. I like to see the big picture. I like to soar. I like to think about the forest more so than uh, the trees. I like to think... Um, just more big ideas and things like that. Um, not necessarily dealing with a lot of the the daily ins and outs of things. Um, that's why I like to delegate. Uh, I see the big picture, right? And then I have those who I, I lead with um, and I say, hey, I need you to do this and this is why. I need you to do this, and this is why. Then I step back and continue to soar. Typically, when I, uh, like, you come down to Little Rock, if you go in a skyscraper um, uh, in one of the banks, you can go up to the top and see everything that's going on. That's what I like to do. And then other times you like to get down uh, to the ground floor and see what's going on. And I just like to be at the top level and just see uh, and think about things that way. So, a lion because they're quiet, but powerful, but then also an eagle because they soar and they like to see the big picture. And that's pretty much my personality. All righty. We're uh, asked Dr. Phil anything. Well, almost anything. We're getting down to some last questions here. And so give us your opinion on the Democratic nominees for president. Yeah. So... If you refer back to my question on the welfare system, um, again, I want and support as much freedom as possible for all people. Um, I am very wary of heavy government interaction, heavy government intervention. I'm very wary of Uh, pitting groups against one another because of their economic situation. I just don't like groups being pitted against each other, period. But in this case, um, you know, a population of the person, people in our country being demonized um, in order to get something politically accomplished. You know, there's a lot of talk thrown around about socialism and democratic socialism. And then as I read about socialism and I see what's being talked about, sometimes I don't think they know what they're talking about. Uh, I get very nervous when um, people are talking about free this, free college, free health care, you know, reparations, 
um, you know, all the other stuff that's the free. And then I'm like, well, who's going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? Um, I think it is a red herring to believe that only like Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates um, are going to, if you tax them, they're going to be able to pay for everything. I'm sorry. The numbers don't work. They're going to tax everybody. That's the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. Um, and I think we need to pay more attention. So uh, I'm not going to vote for none of them because I, principally I don't align with any of them. Um, and I want as much freedom as possible uh, to be able to live my life and to help other people. Uh, and I believe the best solutions are going to come from us, the men and women and children who live in our cities and in our communities because we know best what's going on. A top-down, centralized planning, heavy bureaucracy type approach um, just looks at us like as numbers and doesn't consider our uh, situations and how unique they are. And that's something I've learned in my work at Coho in the last 12 years here in Arkansas. There's infinite amount of stories. Everybody's situation is different and every solution is different. And I think it is pretty naive, pretty pie in the sky to think that there's going to be some one size fits all approach that's going to help people. And the other thing is this, there's a trade off. Um, you know, do you want a quality of freedom? Uh, I think if we pursue equality first, we're not going to get any freedom. But if we pursue freedom, equality expands. Why? Because we have the freedom to interact with one another. And in our interactions with one another freely, without somebody coming in and saying, I have to interact with this person, or I have to live next to this person, or I have to do this, or I'm going to be penalized for it, I think that creates a lot of um, distrust, uh, but ultimately it depersonalizes us, it dehumanizes us, because as you restrict freedom, you are dehumanizing people. And I think we know in our country, uh, we've had instances where people have had no freedom and how they were treated um, as depersonalized uh, men and women. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm not voting for any of them. I'm not voting for Donald Trump either. Uh, I got my issues with him. Uh, but I'm going to vote because, yeah, you should vote. Vote. Vote somebody. Because uh, that's a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. America. I've uh, been a lot of places, seen a lot of things. Uh, and no place rivals this place. I'm just telling you. It, there's no, there's just, it isn't. So uh, I don't know what else to say. All righty. What can the church do better in America? Good night. Where do I start? So first is this. I need, hear me out, okay? I need my brothers and sisters on the left to learn the lessons of the moral majority from the 80s and the 90s. 
Do not align yourself with a particular political party. One of the failures of the right evangelical Christianity is alignment to the Republican Party or the GOP. And I am begging, I am pleading with my brothers and sisters who are more progressive and on the left, do not align yourself with a political party, whether it's Democrats or it is Democratic Socialists or Socialists. Christians, left, right, middle, we should not feel at home anywhere in a political party. Learn the lesson of the moral majority. Learn the lesson of the evangelicals who like tied themselves to Donald Trump. Learn the lesson of tying yourself to the GOP or the Republican Party. Do not tie yourself to a candidate. Do not tie yourself to a particular political party. Align yourself with freedom, but more so align yourself with the kingdom, the city of God. And in doing so, you're not going to find a home. You're, you're just not. Uh, what can the church do better in America? Um, the church can do better in America in spending more of its money to help the brokenness that exists among its congregants, left or right, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. I mean, you got the stuff with sexual abuse, um, human trafficking, depression, anxiety. Instead of building cool buildings and all that kind of stuff and putting out, you know, all these Bible study studies and all that, uh, what would it look like to put that money back into the people? Or some of the things I'm seeing, which is awesome, taking your offerings and paying off people's medical bills. Building housing for the homeless. Hey, opening up like grocery stores by building community gardens and harvesting that food and then giving it away to uh, your neighbors. See, again, the answer rests with us. We don't have to wait on Washington, D.C. or whatever your state capital is or your seat of county government or your city council and mayor. Um, the answer's right there. So churches can do better in the use of their money in opening up medical centers. Hello? Paying off medical bills. Just, just go to hospitals and be like, hey, we're about to write a check this is our Sunday offering. We're just giving it all to said hospital or uh, to this medical center. Opening up new types of grocery stores. Putting people to work uh, who are at your local shelters and things like that. These are the things that the church can do better. In regards to uh, politics, okay, um, Speak the truth to power. Again, we have no home. So the church should have been just as the church, left and right, middle, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, should have been just as critical about President Obama 
as it is about Donald Trump. Speak truth to power. And so when government is pressing beyond its constitutional enumerated powers, that's your opportunity to speak truth to power. When government is seeking to do harm to people for the sake of some economic or political gain, speak truth to power because the church should be always on the side of life from conception to death. The church should be vocal about the unborn. The church, again, when I say the church, left, right, middle, Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox should be vocal about how children are being treated at the border with sex trafficking, in foster care, in regards to adoption. The church should be vocal about how the elderly are being treated in nursing homes, out on the streets. The church should be vocal about, hey, how veterans are being uh, treated. The church should be on the side of life <coughs> for the glory of God. Arrhenius said this, that the glory of God is man fully alive. And so what would that look like if the church was fully alive, announcing the good news and loving one's neighbor in word and deed? So that's what the church can do better in America. And I think I hit on it. Faith, social, economic, political. That's our spheres of life uh, generally here in America. So that was Ask Dr. Phil. Well, almost anything. That's a good 40 minutes of me blabbering and talking. So, hey, you guys have a great weekend. Remember to love, be kind, and be generous. Remember to find somebody who does not look like you, believe like you, think like you do. Um, give them a hug. Buy them a drink. Say, hey, I think you are amazing. Um, and if we remember to live in hope, we can do the impossible. You guys take care and God bless. This has been Humanity Matters Podcast, discussing and reflecting on theology, philosophy, leadership, and nonprofits. For more information, visit our website, philipfletcher.org, or you can shoot us an email, leave us a comment, email us at humanitymatterspodcast at gmail.com. Like us on YouTube under Humanity Matters. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. If we remember to live in hope, we can do the impossible.